from the things of this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, I, uh, ever since I've heard of that uh, spectrum of worship, which is the, um, the spectrum which on one side you have be still, on the other side you have celebrate. And uh, sometimes people don't quite get it uh, because it almost sounds like we're bipolar or something. Uh, you know, as if we're confused. No, there's, there's times when we ought to be as quiet and as meek and as humbled as Isaiah was in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He was, he was on his face before the Lord. And let me tell you, that, that's a great place to be. But when I find other scriptures like David dancing before the Lord with all of his might when the glory of God came to fill the temple, he, he was so excited that God was engaged in this world, that God was going to dwell among his people, and the dancing took place. And I'm telling you, maybe I'm not a good dancer, but uh, I'm kind of glad we don't have to do dancing. But the, uh, the emphasis there was what joy he had. And uh, as today we sang that one song, especially when, when my name was called and out from the grave... I came. There is so much excitement when you realize that should be true for you. It should be true for me that God has called our name and that we can step forth in this newness of life. And that's something to be joyful about. Today, we're looking at a text of scripture. If you're turning your Bibles, we'll be looking at Romans. Uh, but before we turn to Romans, I want to go to the word cloud and remind you that you're in a Bible-believing church and what that means is that, uh, that we are not ashamed of the Bible. Uh, whenever we hold it up, I, my, mine is symbolically red, but it's supposed to be red, R-E-A-D, uh, just like yours is supposed to be red. We want you to be in the Word of God. We talk about here at the church for our 2020 vision is to be, um, as we say, deep and wide. We want you to get deeper in the Word, and then we want the wide aspect, which is the W-I-D, E, the four aspects of worship, uh, influence, discipleship, and evangelism. And that's for the whole decade. We're challenging you to get deeper in the Word. My prayer is that you're, you're investing in the Word, that it is not something that is foreign to you. And I'm praying that when you run into difficult texts, ask, and you will get clear clarity. You'll get some answers to those questions because we want to rightly handle the Word of God because it's God-breathed and it's good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the men and women of, of God might be equipped, thoroughly furnished to do what God has called them to be doing. Now, when you realize that we're Bible-believing, that's where we get the good news of eternal life. We have the words of eternal life, as I prayed earlier, that we have something that others don't have. We have hope. We have direction. Even in the midst of despair, even if there was a takeover, nobody could take what you actually have. If you're in Christ, behold, all things have become new. And that's worth celebrating. Now, if you would, let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as given in the originals. Uh, in other words, if you could go back to the original Hebrew and Aramaic and the Greek, uh, these things God actually gave them without error, without flaw. And uh, that's why I want to rightly handle the word. We're going to be reading English. By the way, praise God. It is not easy to read those other things, especially Hebrew that reads uh, from the other side. It reads backwards. Um, but what we end up doing is the translation we have is, is very, very close to the original. 
I like using the ESV, even though I've memorized most out of the New King James Version. But most importantly is that you get into the Word and study it and hear it and hear it proclaimed, which is what we're going to do right now. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's and Aaron-inspired Word. I'd like us to start um, at verse 4, at verse 4 of chapter 2. Then I'm going to go back and read a bigger portion. But in chapter 2, verse 4, there is a nugget of truth that I want you to hear from the beginning. Because we're in this lovely section of the Bible that talks about people. And uh, if we talk about people, I know that that sounds like gossip. But when God talks about people, it's truth. And a lot of times we don't like hearing what we hear about what God tells us about people. But if you look there at verse 4... Verse 4, it is uh, chapter 2, verse 4. The scripture says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance of his and patience? Now, I'm going to start over again to make sure you're catching up with me. There's a question that's being asked, and he says, Or do you presume on the riches of three things, of God's kindness, of God's forbearance, and God's patience? So that's what he's asking. He says, are you presuming on the riches of these three things, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I want to make sure that you hear that, because when we read the rest of the text, you'll you'll miss it. At least I tended to miss it. Um, Think about that last phrase. And and it's so beautiful when it says, uh, not knowing, the people should have known that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you and me to repentance. That's the nugget of truth I want to tackle in just a moment. But uh, if we could, let's turn to the text that we have provided for us, which includes the last verse of the, uh, of the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 32. Um, and then we're going to go down here to where it finishes up in verse 11, where God says he's not, he has no partiality. Uh, And when you hear this, this is a continuation of of chapter 1 because there was no chapter divisions in Paul's writing. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up in verse 32, which summarizes chapter 1, the second half. And it says, this is God's word, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice these things that he just listed deserve to die, they not only still do them, but they give approval or applaud those who practice those bad things. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, you don't, have, you don't have an excuse. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who discerns or judges, the word is crinomai, for in passing your judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, as the judge, practice the very same things that you condemn. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things, these these such things. And verse 3 begins a question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or the text I'm focusing on, the second question, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day, he will render to each one according to that person's works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give him eternal life. But for those who, seek, who, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Whether Jew or Greek. He says, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But in, con in juxtaposition, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will take the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word and make it an effectual means of salvation. I pray that you might open our eyes up, that you might cause us to be able to celebrate that we have not been left in this human condition, but we have been brought from the grave when you called our name. Lord, I pray that we might be able to see even today how far you've taken us from where we've been and Lord, if there's someone here today that you're calling, I pray that they will respond to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a philosophy being advanced these days that has received, um, that has received traction in our postmodern culture. Now, it's a zeitgeist. It's a spirit of the age, and it says, I'm okay and you're okay. And ironically, we're not okay. Uh, I remember there was another church that was forming and they used to use that say, statement that uh, it, it's okay, uh, come as you are, it's okay. Um, and then I remember challenging that pastor saying, it's not okay to stay that way. You know, when you come the way you are, just as I am, uh, the whole goal is not for you to just be the same when you leave. The goal is for you, as I just read in Ephesians chapter one, for you to be holy and set apart for you to be without blame, blameless, for you to be uh, advancing the kingdom of God. It's really beautiful. So it's not just okay to say that I'm okay and you're okay. That's a lot more like Barney, the dinosaur. I love you, you love me, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay. It's really not. But when you hear that zeitgeist, when you hear that spirit of the age, it also implies that you and I can stay this way. And I'm trying to challenge us that we can't. When we look at Romans today, you're going to find that you don't want to stay in that place. For those of you that know intimately what it's like to be listed in, in, in that uh, list of evil, if, you're, if you've dabbled in it, if you kind of identify with somebody, oh, that was, oh yeah, that was fun. Be careful. You don't want to stay here. Um, Today's culture tells us that you can explore your feelings and you can invent a new persona. You can volitionally identify by creativity. In other words, you are special and you can be anything you want to be. 
And how dare anybody tell you otherwise? An example of this, I watched a video that one of the church members sent to me um, about a school board. Now, my sister's a school board member over in a different state, but this one was out west. And, uh, and this school board person, uh, the video has a zoom-in picture of her, and she has cat ears on at the school board meeting. I think she was trying to identify with some of the kids who identify as cats who use litter boxes in the bathrooms. Now, when I saw that, I'm like, are you serious? And then I listened to the little speech that she had, and uh, she ended up uh, surprising me. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. But when she started to speak about things, there were five board members, and she said that she didn't feel safe. And she said that because there were three board members that identified with the LGBTQ+, whatever those things are, because they're all homosexual identities, um, she said that because they were in the majority, she was living in fear, and the school board should have nothing to do with that one Christian school that she mentioned by name. She said, you won't believe it, but on the front page of their website, they say that they want to follow Jesus Christ. And they want to implement a biblical world and life view. And she said to the board, we can't have that. I don't feel safe with people going around with that mission and vision. And they're not even hiding it. She says, we can have nothing to do with them. And listen to that. I'm saying, what planet are we on? You know, when you look at the founding of our country, when you look at the Mayflower Compact, when you look at the charters of each of the individual states, even when you look at the Declaration of Independence, all of these mentions about God and about his divine purpose. I mean, we even get our, our rights from the inalienable. You know, they can't be taken away because they're God-given. But yet there's so many people in our culture today that are not there anymore. They're not there. From that platform of identification and with the fortification of the majority feeling... She proceeded to say, this is the new agenda. This is the new way that we're going to go. And we're going to leave that, that, that archaic stuff, that scary stuff behind. I couldn't get over it, that the idea of a biblical world and life view is now seen as openly hostile to the education of our children. The apostle wanted us to be prepared for this. If you read Romans 1, you shouldn't be surprised. You can't be surprised. Okay, now in Romans chapter 1, uh, it was written to help us to make sense of some of this nonsense. It was written so that we might be ahead of the curve and realize that God was not reacting to some situation. Oh, no, God's hand is short. Oh, no, God's been on vacation. And now people are doing things because God's not shaping it or God's not directing it. No, when we examine chapter 2, as we just read, we are exposed to a second and then a later kind of mess, showing us that humanity is in trouble and that we are no longer in Genesis 1.31. I like that verse. It's after God made man and woman, and he said, and God made it, and it was all very good. I would have loved to live in that era. Can you imagine? It was all very good 
until Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be like God. They had listened to another voice that said, hey, don't you want to be more like God? Don't you want to understand what that evil is? Because God knows about evil. Don't you want to know about it too? And so, of course, Eve and Adam both said, hey, that sounds interesting. What a great idea to be more like God. But it was at the price of being, of seeing God's holiness and of experiencing the wrath of a holy God. This bad news that he presents is given as a, it's presented as a prosecutor. He's a lawyer and he's giving an indictment. He's making the case of guilt and it's pretty easy. You don't really have to even go to the internet to be able to make a case that people are in trouble, that this world is a mess. And the odd, odd thing is he's describing human beings. He's describing us. Building the case made in chapter 1, we have an explanation uh, that, that goes a little further. The case in chapter 1 is sinners sinning blatantly. So if you want to be able to capture the second half of chapter 1, it's sinners sinning. Okay? And then in chapter 2, now we see uh, another group, and this, this, this group is included in chapter 2. It's judges who judge. So you got sinners that sin, and you got judges that judge. Now, just to be able to help you understand this, if you'll turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, I want you to see some of the sin that some of these sinners were sinning. And if you start in verse 28, you're going to be able to see, uh, I'm not going to get into all the minutiae, but just look at the big list, verse 28. And since these people did not see fit to acknowledge God. In other words, the sinners that sin are godless people. They're unrighteous. Remember, they don't know the right way. They do what's right in their own eyes. So God gives them up to a debased mind, and so their thinking is all messed up because now they don't have the word of God, they don't have the revelation of truth, and they walk in darkness, and the Bible says they stumble because they can't see. And so they think they figured it out, they make themselves wise, or at least they boast of being wise, but really, they're pretty, they're not wise. Because fools are the ones who act like there is no God. Look at some of the things that these, they foolishly do. They do the things that are not to be done. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Okay, their cup was full. And even if I just summarized it by saying evil. You know, Proverbs chapter 6 tells us about how the six things that God hates. And he's just listing all the evil things. You know, feet that run to wickedness and, and tongues that, that bear a false witness, um, hands that shed innocent blood. All of those things, there's nothing new under the sun. But these people can't see God, so therefore they're godless in their thinking and their, their, their minds are filled with this evil. Then if you look at the list of what that evil mind does, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. In other words, you start looking at people and saying, wow. They're tricking me. They have a bad motivation. They, they are, um, they're ready to step on me if it will get them to where they want to go. You know, because they probably want what I have, and that's why they're envious. I mean, you can just see how this happens. I mean, isn't it fascinating that if you're in marketing, what is the goal of marketing? If you see an advertisement on TV or on the radio, what are they trying to get you to do? To be envious. Hey, don't you want that? Don't you need that? Don't you have to have it? And if you look at somebody, then you're going to say, well, they got it. I should have it too. And before long, they're playing the strings of your heart. And since godless people are really easily played, they end up saying, I got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have it. 
And the next thing you know, you're spending money and you're going after it and you're selling your soul to have it. And once you get it, then you do your best to try to protect it. Almost as if that is so important that you hang on to. Only to realize that if you live another 20 years, it's going to be thrown in the dumpster one day. But you had to have it. It was that important. Now, this is the sin, sinner sinning. So that's kind of the thing that's going on in their minds and, and some of the, the motivations. Uh, then it gives a list here that leads up in verse 30. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil, they're disobedient of parents, they're foolish, they're faithless, they're heartless, they're ruthless. Now, sinners sin. This is what sinners do. How many of you expect sinners to not be ruthless? How many expect that sinners will not be disobedient to their parents? How many of you expect that sinners are not going to be haughty? That they're, they're, they're going to... Do you expect sinners to love God? I mean, when you go through the list, you know, last week as I was marching through the list that was about ready to just weigh you down, you know, the weight of all of the sin just makes you feel like, oh, it's misery. Today I'm trying to show you, what else would you expect? The whole chapter one is the indictment on humanity. Sinners sin. They don't acknowledge God. I'm going to get into that in just a minute. Now the second, the second group that we're going to see is the judges who judge. So let me highlight that for you just to be able to see in chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Okay. For in passing your judgment on another person, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very things. The judge judges. Do you see it? Now, in the next few verses, you're going to see this explanation. He's just painted this whole indictment about humanity, our ancestors, ever since creation, since they've been kicked out of the, 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 uh, the Garden of Eden. Everybody has had this proclivity to be sinning. Sin or sin. Now he comes back and he says, but there are some people that have this ability to add to their sinning, judging. Judging. It's a little different from just sinning. Okay, now it can be sin, but it's not listed in the sins that are in the first chapter, the godlessness. In this particular shift, in this different group of people, um, the desire to make these judgments is because they have the ability to see more. Okay, if you're looking at chapter 2, what are they judging? Are they saying, oh, you're too tall or you're too small? Are they saying you're too fat or you're too skinny? Are they saying that you're, that you're boring and you're too exciting? I mean, what are they judging? It's really interesting that chapter 2 picks up on chapter 1. And when you understand this, my prayer is, is as, we, uh, as we celebrate today, you'll see it. What he's saying is, is that the people of chapter 2 are able to judge the people of chapter 1. The people who are judges are judges of the evil people in chapter 1. The judges are there, and it's almost like they're sitting in their, in their seats, and they're saying, or they're, they're standing there on the higher platform, and they're looking down, and they're saying, oh, you're sinning. Yep, you're a bad sinner. Oh, you've really done some bad sins and you've tried to hide it. Oh, oh, you've done really some. No, this is what judges do. Okay, the judges actually take this place where they think they're a little better than the sinners because they can see the sin. 
And because they can see the sin, and because they can recognize that it's not so nice, they might call it bad, they might call it evil, they might call it heinous, they might call it malicious. You know, they might even use some of the terms that Christians would use. But these judges, they know enough that those sinners that sin are bad. And so they judge them. I'm not going to hang with those kind of people. You know, it, it happens. And then when you understand that the judges are judging, then you go through this text and it's really quite interesting. So that's, this is all a part of the introduction to the sermon today. I wanted you to be able to uh, realize that the, the bad news of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 is all there so that we can know that God is not surprised at what's going on in this world. He's not surprised at all. In fact, I could tell you that God... In his providence, as we just read, according to his eternal purpose, even people's sin or the sinning of sinners is not taking God off guard either. God overrules, but he doesn't dictate to them that they need to sin because they're only culpable for their own sin. When you, when you realize it, it is okay to come as you are, but it's not okay to stay that way. God's salvation is not going to be extended to those who do the sin and applaud those who keep doing the sin. So in chapter 1, when you, get, when you kind of wrap it all up, you're saying, wow, what a messed up world. Okay, But he's not done. And that's why we go, and God is showing how he's going to transform sinners. And that's why the nugget of truth that I wanted you to hear is in this text. That God's kindness leads to repentance. I'm going to ask you again. I hope it'll flow off your lips a little quicker. Okay? God's kindness leads to repentance. Now, when you get that nugget of truth, that's the gospel hope, even in the midst of all of this mess. Okay? So that's where we're going to be. Uh, the three points of the sermon for you following along, if you're using the fourth point uh, supplement, the first one is to compare the in indictment details. We're going to compare chapter 1 with chapter 2. I've already at least introduced them to you. Now I want to compare them a little deeper. Then secondly, I want to evaluate and apply the indictment to our situations. Okay? I want you to be able to realize, is this just talking about everybody else, or does this actually come home? And thirdly, I'm going to be asking you to contrast the way God deals with the sinner sinning versus the judges judging. Does God just do the same thing? Did you pick up on it when we looked at the text? Because once you do that, then you're going to be able to come to the application at the end is, wow, thanks be to God who gives us victory through all of these things. Okay, I'm going to go through that. First thing, then, is this comparison between the indictment details, how they view God, how they handle truth, and how the revelation has come to them. First, I want you to see how they view God. If you look at the first group of people, I mean, both groups are without excuse. If you remember in chapter 1, he says that, the, oh, man, you are without excuse because what's been... If you can even look at there right now if you turn. Uh, you're going to be able to see that uh, when he says you are without excuse. It's at the end of verse 20. So let me start at verse 20. For the invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that these people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their, or futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they thought themselves to be wise. They became fools, and in their foolishness they exchanged the glory of what God has presented for something that is man-made or that is, that is a part of creation. 
instead of the creator. Now, having said that, chapter 1 presents a view of God. Now, both of them are without excuse. If you remember, because I said at the beginning of chapter 2, therefore, you have no excuse. In chapter 1, there's, there's no excuses. Chapter 2, there's no excuses. These are, this is how he's explaining it. That first group is the sinner sinning. The second group is the judges judging. Now, all of them are, could be us. Because we're sinners that sin, and I'm sure that we're judges that have judged. But I want to be able to explain to you how he's making this case in the indictment. So the first group of people, they are godless. It's almost like they know that there's a God, but they choose to live as if there is no God. Basically, they, if you remember at the beginning of, of the wrath of God being revealed, it's because they suppress the truth. The truth is out there. They can open their eyes up on a beautiful day. They can look at the ocean and just be amazed at how it has boundaries. They can look at the big storms that come in with winds that are fascinating. They can even look at some beautiful animals. How can a bird fly? Or I'm still amazed with how can a duck swim on that cold water? You know, it still amazes me. When you look around, you're going to see that since creation, these things ought to preach that there is a God out there who's amazing. But these people that are the sinners that sin, they don't see God. They live as if there is no God, so they are godless. Now, the group in chapter 2, they are not godless. They are God-aware. Okay? What I mean by this is that they don't deny that there is a God. So when I look at this and explain about some of these people, you're going to know that they recognize that there is a God out there, but they don't know much about him. Okay? So if you look with me in chapter 2, let me read it for you again. Verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same thing. We know that the judgment of God... Okay, that's the key point. They know that there's a God. And he says, we know it. Okay? People who are going to be judges, they have a sense that there is a God because they understand that there are God's standards. They understand some things that there is right and wrong. Some people would call them a moralist. Some people would say, oh, they have morality or because right and wrong is determined by something. But these people have a God awareness. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, if you're really following along in the text, you can say, hey, you judger, you're a hypocrite because you're condemning somebody for something you've done. That's a hypocrite. And then he comes back and he says, and you already know that the only one that's not a hypocrite is God. He's the one who can rightly judge that bad behavior because he doesn't do it. And that's what he's basically saying here in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And that's one of the things that you want to recognize about God. People that are judges are aware of God. And, and in a sense, that's good. Because they don't totally, they're not totally uh, withdrawn from God's grace. Because in chapter 1, and I'll go over that in just a moment. Okay, so, this, so the first group in chapter 1, they have truth. You know, general revelation. If you remember, I told you that, that if you want to go to a passage of Scripture in the New Testament where God gives general revelation, where he says everybody gets privileged to general revelation, he says it's chapter 1. Just like if you go to the Old Testament, it's Psalm 19. General revelation is God has put his fingerprints out here and everybody should be able to see it. 
There's enough out there that you should be amazed. That's why I was mentioning the birds and the, and the flying and, or the swimming and even, even creation itself or, or the beautiful sunset or the storm. All of these things declare that there is a God and you're not it. Okay, so he says that, there, that in order for you to go forward and be a sinner that sins, you suppress the truth. Basically, what does suppressing the truth mean? Well, you can squeeze it away. I think the way that suppression actually works is that you just get distracted. And I've learned that art with my little granddaughter. You know, if she's doing something bad, the best thing to do sometimes, not all the times, but it's very easy to say, here, look at this toy. And so when you get her attention to move to something else, I've just moved her away from where she was focused before. When people suppress the truth and sinners sin, they end up blowing off that there is a God, blowing off anything about that God, and basically saying, hey, I'm here. It's my, it's my life. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my vacation. It's my time. Do you see what happens? This is how sinners suppress the truth. In order to suppress the truth, they can even get to the point where they can, they can look at an ultrasound and they can see this, you know, the little heartbeat of the baby, and they can still say, ah, it's just tissue. They suppress the truth that's right in front of them. Most of the time, they'll never look and they'll never listen to a sonogram. They'll never do the ultrasound. Why? Because they'd rather not why do you think that that's not a part of Planned Parenthood's plan? They don't want ultrasounds to be seen for everybody that comes in pregnant because they'll suppress the truth. Now, that's the sinner sinning. What happens with the truth for the people that are judging? Well, I believe that they have some truth. And, that, and when we looked at verse 2, you could see it. They know, or we all know that, that God is going to do a few things. Okay, if I take you to the next verse, you're going to be able to see that, that, that it's not just that, that God is not a hypocrite. They know about that. But look a little bit more about what they're supposed to know about God. So in verse 3, do you, he asked two questions. Uh, and, and the first question is, do you suppose, O man, who judges those who practice such things and yet do, and does them, them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Okay, so now we've got that God is not a hypocrite judge and that God is going to judge. But then he goes on in the next question. He says in verse 4, Or do you presume upon the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, in that particular verse, there's a lot of things about God that they're supposed to know. Can you list the three of them for me? Kindness, forbearance, and patience. Do you even know about those three things? Is God kind to you? Has God been forbearing to you? Has God been patient with you? It's really interesting that these judges who judge, they have, a, an, they have an awareness of these three things about God. But if you look a, bit, a little further, he says, um, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Because now he's basically telling these judges who judge that there is going to be a judgment day. And the judges know it. There's a judgment day, and the judgment day is not just going to be a day where we have a party. There's going to be an accountability, and you're laying up wrath that's going to be poured out to you on judgment day. That's what the judges know about God. 
They, they, it's not that they suppress the truth. They know these things about God. Now, as I've said, they have, both have general revelation. The, the sinners that sin, they are living in a created world, but they live as if God doesn't have any fingerprints on it. The second group of people have general revelation of God's standards. When they go around, they recognize that something's not right. They just recognize it. It's kind of like when you're driving down the expressway and somebody passes you going really fast. What thought do you have? Well, yesterday as I was driving back from Carolina, there was a Mustang, and it had awesome mufflers. Vroom! And let me tell you, it almost went by me that fast. And I had dual thoughts. I wish I had that car. I'd get home quicker. And then the other one was like, are you crazy? You know, because we were on, on uh, I was going around Washington Beltway, and uh, there was three cars, and they were all cruising. But that, when that Mustang came, man, it was, it, was, it was like grease lightning. It was really fascinating. Now, what my point is, is that when judges judge, you're going to see lots of different things. And you may have a, a misjudgment. You may, you may find yourself wanting to be more and more like this, and the reason that you judge may have some bad motives. It's usually that judges don't judge just because they feel like they're better if they judge. Well, they might probably do that. I haven't, haven't really plumbed the depths of why judges judge. Let me ask you, why do you judge? You know, do you, do you like the tie or do you not like the tie? You know, do you like where you parked when you drove in? You know, did you like the music that we did today or did you not like it? Too loud. Oh, I judge it as too soft. You know, why don't we do this every week? You know, whatever judgment that you're making, why'd you do it? Probably you couldn't help yourself. Okay? I'm not exactly sure why judges judge. But judges do judge. They have a sense that there's something right or wrong. I was telling you that when that Mustang passed me, I knew that that Mustang was in sin. I may have been jealous, but I knew that the people in the car were in sin. Okay? They were making me covet. Okay, now, I mean, all of these things, it's all their fault, too. Now, when you realize this, why do I judge? It's because I'm probably not satisfied just doing the speed limit. I'm probably not just satisfied just cruising through life. You see, when you judge, you're looking at what other people have. You're looking at what else is out there. You're almost playing the role of God. But you don't have God's role because you're not the one that owns it all. You're the one that wishes you owned it all. Now, there, I told you there was a few other things to compare here. Um, I believe that the sinner's sin, they have nonsense. It doesn't really make sense why they want to leave the natural use uh, guys, leaving guys, uh, guys leaving women to be with guys or, or women leaving men to be with women. I mean, the Bible calls it unseemly. It's unnatural. Why would they do it? Is it really that much more fun? Is it really better? Is the alternative to what God made and said was very good in Genesis 1, is it so bad that you have to discard it and say, the heck's on this? I mean, it's so sad. I call it nonsense. Sin or sin, it's nonsense. But judges judge with common sense. They know something more. It should be kind of given that it's wrong to murder. It should be kind of given that it's wrong to deceive. It should be kind of given that you 
that you don't cause trouble, you know, you should be able to work with people. It should be kind of a given, a common sense. But both are condemned. The chapter one, when you, when you get listed in that list of sins, I don't know how many of you want to stand up and say, that's me, I'm the number six. It's so shameful that nobody wants to be listed on the sinner sinning list. But when it comes to the second chapter, it's interesting that when you're a judge, you condemn yourself. It's not God condemning you as much as you know better. You know it's wrong, and yet you still do it. And he makes it so clear in chapter 2. He says, he says uh, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you act as a judge, but you're guilty of the same things that you condemn. Now, I told you that as we compare, I want to uh, evaluate what God does to these people. Now, in the first section, God pulls back his grace three times, and that's found in verse uh, 24, 26, and 28. Okay, but in the second chapter, instead of pulling back his grace to these judges that judge, he ends up asking a couple of questions. Now, I'm telling you this. This might be the way to parent these days. Ask better questions. Okay, so God meets, uh, God through the apostle is writing to the people in Rome. And I imagine that there's a few people in Rome that are judges. These judges judge in Rome. And when Paul is writing to them, he says, hey, you're going to identify. And that's the second point of the sermon today. Um, but when, when you look here, the three things that they are questioned about, or there's two main questions. And then there's this, this nugget of truth that I'll highlight. The first question is, do you think you'll escape? And the second question is, do you presume that God's grace won't run out? And what I mean by that is that when you get it, he says, first of all, you know, judges judge, and then judges judge the next day, and judges judge the next day. Now, the judges that judge already know that there's going to be a final day of judgment, but nobody cares about that because that final day of judgment is somewhere out there. And they've judged it to be so far away that it doesn't matter right now. Eat, drink, and be merry. Today is the day that we judge because it's fun to judge. It's fun to condemn people. It's fun to point people and tell them that they're not good enough or that they've missed the mark. It's fun. Now, in chapter 2, you find that these people that have been judging, uh, they are now in a situation where God says, time out. Stop your judging for a minute. Let me, let me ask you two questions. Okay, Mr. Judge, Mrs. Judge, do you think you're going to get away with it? That's the question. Now, this is what a lot of people were asking about that lawyer down in South Carolina this week. Any of you follow that trial? You know, um, it, I have a couple of lawyers in the family, and so we were having a fun talk about the, 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 the guy who knows how to handle himself in court. Uh, he's very wealthy, and, and yet here, if you don't know, the, the whole thing is that his wife was murdered with a gunshot, and his son was murdered with a gunshot, two different guns, but it was on his property, on the kennel where the dog is, and, uh, and the guy ends up saying, hey, um, I wasn't there. And then somehow or other, they had to get a warrant, and they got into the guy's, the boy, the 21-year-old boy's phone, and they found in social media that he had just taken a picture uh, when he was in the kennel, and when he was t doing this thing and, and talking, um, that guess who was in the same video? His dad. And so in the court case, you find the judge, the judge is, I mean, the, the prosecutor brings this before them and he says, hey, this is you. 
And finally, the guy said, well, I lied, but I didn't murder them. I did lie about being there, but I didn't murder them. You know, he's standing there saying, I think I can get off. I think I'm excused from this because I wouldn't murder my, my wife and my daughter. I mean, my son. I wouldn't do it. It's really, really interesting when you think that judges, when people who think they know it all, think that they can get away with it. And that's the question. Do you think you can get away? Do you think you'll escape? Be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ. The second question is a little bit more poignant. He says, really, the better question is this. You must believe that this God who's going to have judgment one day, he hasn't judged you yet, has he? You presume that he's never going to. You know about this God. And you know that he's something different. You know that he's got standards. But you presume that he's never going to follow through. He's never going to give you what you deserve. He's never going to send you to hell. He's too busy judging everybody else. I'm helping him judge. He's probably going to give me a pass. See, those are the two questions that are asked. And then at the end of that second question, he says, don't you even realize, and the, and the answer rhetorically is, no, you don't even know, that the patience of God is supposed to lead you to repentance. The time that you still have to be judging in this crazy world that's all a mess and you're judging it and you're seeing it's a mess and you're declaring that it's a mess and half the time you're getting it right that it's a mess but God has left you here and he hasn't given you what you deserve yet. That time is supposed to lead you to repent. It's to lead you to fall on your knees. It's to lead you to say, I'm not worthy. It's like the prodigal son finally coming home. My dad was right. I'm not worthy. I'll just go home and I'll tell him I'm not worthy. And you see, but the judges don't judge to be able to come to repentance. They presume that the grace is always going to be there. You'll always have another day. You'll always be able to get through this. Or somebody else will help you, but it's not him. You just presume. Now, this is quick second point is the application of the sermon today, which is the evaluate and apply the indictment to the present. Evaluate and apply. So I'm asking you, does this describe you? Are you the sinner that's sinning? Or are you the judge that judges? Oh, be careful. I'm asking you to judge yourself. You'd rather just say, oh, no. It's much easier to judge somebody else because you can observe them with more um, neutrality. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm not tainted or biased. I'll just go ahead and... Well, I know that these people are doing this. This is like the Mustang that passed me. I already judged them. My greatest judgment, like I said, was about covetousness. They caused me to covet. It's their fault. Okay, but in reality, what, what happens is that we, we try to justify our judging. We, we try to, to do the twisting around just like that lawyer in South Carolina tried to pull it off. And the question I'm raising, does this describe you? Does this describe me? Does this describe our loved one, our neighbor? Are we godless, or do we just know about God? Have we suppressed the truth, or are we just aware of some truth that we use when it helps us? Are we, are we crazy in the world's eyes? Have we invented genders that we're supposed to, and that we can, in, in, or that we can voluntarily identify? Do we feel society's fabric unravel? 
Do we see the old standards not being upheld anymore? Do we see chaos in the streets? See, you don't have to look very far. What Paul was describing in Romans 1 is no different now than it was then. Now, there's different uh, ebbs and flows, no doubt, but the heart of man is desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 tells us, same situation. Uh, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. These are still people from creation that sinners were sinning and judges have judged, and they judge with a sense of, of awareness of God's standard. Now, the third point is the contrast. How does God deal with the way of sinners sinning and judges judging? As I've kind of touched on this already, you can see that the wrath of God pours out from heaven upon the unthankful and the ones who have no honor of God. The ones who have been given, their hearts have been given up to lusts, verse 24. Their hearts have been given up to dishonorable passions and actions. Uh, in other words, their bodies are now being used for things that are just crazy and unseemly, unnatural. And then verse 28, their minds are given over to only think dark thoughts. And we went through that big list already. To the judging judges, he provides these two questions. And when he provides these questions, he's giving them a measure of grace. And he's telling them, hey, evaluate, judge for yourself. Why are you doing what you're doing? Do you really think that you can get away with this judgment when you've already self-condemned? Do you really think that God is never going to actually bring judgment down on you? So you could basically say God doesn't judge anymore because God is just love. God is just gracious. So if you see it as God sees it, then you know that people will not escape. And the judgment that he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. He said you should expect it. And he gives them those insights. Okay, you, you judges, I want you to know that there is a final judgment day. I want you to know that God is keeping track of everything. It's better than 5G with facial recognition. It's better than anything the Chinese has for surveillance. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, he is going to know everything you've done. He's going to know everywhere you've been. And the thing that the videos can't tell, maybe cell phones try to reveal a little bit, but you, you're not only going to be placed there as being guilty, but God's going to say, this is why you did it. Even when you can't even explain it all yourself. Judgment Day is coming. But there's three things. God's kindness, God's forbearance, and God's patience. If you could bring up that one verse from, uh, um, I have it here from uh, 2 Peter 3.9. I just want to make this as we kind of wrap things up. God's kindness. In the Old Testament, there is no word for grace. You can't find grace in the Old Testament because the, that's a Greek word, charis. In the Old Testament, whenever you hear it, it's going to be from the word chesed. It's C-H-E-S-S-E-D, chesed. And chesed means loving kindness. So it's kindness mixed with love. Whenever God has love and kindness mixed together, that's grace. When God extends his grace to you, it's because of his loving kindness, because God is love. We learn about that in 1 John New Testament, chapter 5. God is love. So chesed is there. Now, when he says that there's kindness, when mankind has kindness, and the, and the judges that judge, they know about God's kindness, because Why? Because they're still here. God has been nice. Imagine that. So many people think God is nasty and mean. And they don't realize the kindness of God. 
The second word there is forbearance. And when I was looking it up and trying to understand it, forbearance is almost like you have a debt. And when you can't pay it, um, the, the, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, Jesus told a story that if you couldn't pay, then sometimes you could just throw that person in jail. And then you could make them pay with their time and their life. But then you never get your money recouped. Okay, and forbearance, it was basically saying, hey, I'll give you another month. I'll give you some mercy. They don't wipe out the debt, but forbearance says, I'll, I'll let it slide for a little while or I'll give you a little bit of a grace period. You hear how grace and mercy are all connected? Because really, grace and mercy are connected. It's really hard to pull them apart. Grace is when you get a gift that you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve, which is punishment and justice. So you have these two things, and then you have this third word, patience. God's patience. How many of you are patient? How many of you pray for patience? I never want to ask that. I'll never tell you to pray for patience. It's not fun to learn how to wait on God. The patience really comes like this, though, is that God is patient, and we're impatient, but the judger that judges knows about God, that God is patient, that he is not in a rush. And that's why I take you to this verse. The Lord is not impatient. The Lord is not slow concerning his promises as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you and me, not wishing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to, what's that final word? Repentance. Repentance. How interesting to see that word again. The Kindness of God is there to lead us to repentance. And now when Peter, in 2 Peter, his final book, as he's wrapping it up in chapter 3, he tells us about a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. In other words, God is not in a rush. God is not saying that every day is a thousand years, and that's not saying that creation took 7,000 years. No, 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 it's not, none of that. It's basically saying, Peter is saying, God is over time. God is not rushed. A day with him is no different than a thousand years for him because for him he's timeless. And then he says, look, God is patient with us. Some people misinterpret this text to be able to say that God wants everybody to go to heaven. Read, read the text with me, if you will. It's, and don't read it out loud, but read it. The Lord, that's curious, God himself is not slow to fulfill his promise. Now, who is his promise towards? It's to us. God is not slow to fulfill his promise to us. And his promise to us is that, that he is patient in fulfilling that promise. He's not wishing that any of those who he's promised this to are going to miss it. They're not going to let it slip through. God is not going to just let it get by. God is not going to let this miss you. But he's faithful to his promise to us that he is not going, time is not the issue. He is going to, as the text says, he is not going to let you perish, but he's going to bring you to where his grace is supposed to lead you to, which is to repentance. Here we stand. It's noon on the Lord's day. Are you repentant? This grace that God has extended to us by sending Jesus to the cross, this patience that he's had, that he waited more than, I would say, uh, two and a half thousand, three thousand years till the time was right. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, uh, to redeem those who were under the curse, Galatians 4.4. 4. 
It was that fullness of time was when the baby was born in Bethlehem. You know, oh, oh, holy night. That little baby was born. And the angels couldn't hold their peace. They said to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day is finally the Savior, is Christ the Lord. God has not been in a rush. He finally came in the right time. The baby came. And in God's providence, he has provided in those 30, 30 years of preparation where Jesus was sinless, keeping the law, keeping the terms of the covenant. And on the last years, those three years of ministry, he ends up giving himself as the great high priest, offering himself as our substitute. God is not slow to fulfill that promise. As some would count slowness. He did it right on time. That when this happened and it took place on Good Friday, and I'm wanting to tell you that from now on, Good Friday is in my sights. It's almost like I got binoculars on and I'm seeing Good Friday from now on. We're going to have communion again and again and again and again. Why? Because we want to see that in the fullness of time, God fulfilled that promise that we should not be left behind, that we should not be cast out. Not any of us should be forgotten. But as John 17 says, all that the Father hath given me, I'll lose none. He is going to save to the uttermost. And it's so beautiful that, that none should be lost, that all should come to that beautiful spot of not judging, but of repentance. Are you there right now? Are you there right now? If the musicians could come forward, I want to lead us in prayer, and the offering's going to be taken up in just a moment. Lord Jesus, we are, we are here at church, and we have listened and we've seen that when Paul was writing to the people in Rome that there's a lot of trouble, that there's a lot of folks who are, the sinners keep on sinning, and they even invented some kind of sins. It was heinous, and it was awful, and we know what happened to Rome. There was a lot of sin, and it ended up falling even though there was a lot of the gospel and there was a lot of advancement of the church. Because where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And we'll find out a little bit more about that. But we thank you, O Lord, as we see that in the second chapter that people are condemned even if they know about God and they know about the day of judgment, but they don't know about repentance. Lord, I pray that you'll help each one of us here today to symbolically fall on our knees that we would come into the presence of our Lord Jesus and forsake all these pet sins, that we would turn from our wicked ways, that we would look to our Savior and as the prodigal ran to the Father, Lord, I pray that we would be quick to not turn to the left or the right. May we not even stumble over our own thoughts, but let us run into the arms of our loving Father that we may be in Christ, forgiven and at peace. Lord, I thank you that we can see that your grace has been given, that we would get to this wonderful place of repentance and being at peace with God. For when we repent, as John 1 says, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all that unrighteousness all that godlessness, all that suppression of the truth, and even all of the judging that was unnecessary. We pray that you'll lead us into your presence and help us to abide there. In Jesus' name, amen. As the is being collected, please think about these things, and then we'll have our closing hymn.